Welcome to Off the Record. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXLAM and FM and available wherever you get your podcasts. We are really delighted this morning to have as our guest, Congressman John Sarbanes. Uh, Congressman has represented Maryland's third congressional district in the U.S. Congress since 2007. He and I came to Congress the same time, but he stayed in and I didn't. Since 2017, he has chaired the Democracy Reform Task Force, an effort to build a government that puts the public's interests ahead of special interests. And in that vein, Congressman Sarbanes authored H.R. 1, the For the People Act, which passed in the House in 2019, but was obstructed by Mitch McConnell in the Senate. But the bill and John are back for another try. So let's talk about what may very well be the most important piece of legislation in Congress and one not enough people have heard about. But we're going to change that today because we want you to pay attention to this piece of legislation, folks. It really matters. And Democrats have made it their very first bill in both the House and the U.S. Senate for good reason. So John, welcome to Off the Record. I'll call you John instead of Congressman, just because we yeah, know each other. For sure. Well, well, Paul, it's great to be here. We miss you in the U.S. Congress. We miss your ideas and your enthusiasm and the energy that was part of the class of 2006, the majority makers, as we called ourselves. That's right. And uh, we had a re more recent class of majority makers that came in 2018, brought the gavel back to the the Democrats, largely with the promise that if we got the gavel, we would move forward and do consequential and transformative democracy reform to try to fight corruption, strengthen voting rights, create more accountability and ethical behavior in Washington, all the things that the public's been clamoring for. So with the class of 18 as being kind of leading edge in the House, we were able to pass H.R. 1 in the 116th Congress. As you very rightly said, uh, Mitch McConnell obstructed it on the Senate side, as he did with a lot of good legislation. But we have a new opportunity now in the 117th Congress. We still have it as a first priority on the House side, H.R. 1, the For the People Act. Uh, but in the last two weeks and in the wake of the Georgia lightning strike, which brought control of the United States Senate, to the Democrats, uh, we now have the opportunity on the Senate side as well, and Leader Schumer has designated it as S1 there. So it's pretty unusual that you get HR1 and S1 to be the same bill in both chambers. That bodes well for us, and we're going to continue to push forward as hard and as fast as we can to make this uh, a, a plan, a program, a set of reforms that can bring our democracy back and begin to restore people's faith in how politics and government work. Well, John, you know, I described the legislation as the most important bill in Congress. And clearly, both Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader Schumer agree because they made it the number one bill in both the House and the Senate. And and as we as as you've alluded to, given all the things that have happened recently. Um, and all the crises we face uh, as a nation that uh, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris are determined to address, 
Why is this bill so important? Why is this at the top of the agenda for both uh, Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader Schumer? Paul, I think for a long time, Americans have felt that their own government really hasn't been paying as much attention to them as they should. They feel like their voice has kind of gotten marginalized by the big money crowd, the insiders, the deep-pocketed donor class, the super PACs, and so forth. So there's been a cynicism out there for a while. I think what we've seen more recently is just how fragile the democracy is. We cannot take it for granted. It's on shaky ground. I mean, to their credit, the American people in November pulled the democracy back from the brink. They fought their way to the ballot box in a lot of different uh, ways. But the democracy they pulled back from the brink uh, still needs a lot of care and attention to become stronger and more resilient. And that's really the idea uh, behind HR1 is to, in this moment where people are feeling the fragility of our democracy, strengthen it, show people that we have a plan to do it. And thank goodness we, we did have a plan. It, it's been put together. Uh, you, get, you credited me with being the author of H.R. 1. I, I like to say rather that I'm the assembler of H.R. 1 because it really contains all of these wonderful proposals that have been brought forward by members of Congress for years now based on what they've been hearing from their constituents. Right at the top of the list, I have to say, and it's Title I of H.R. 1, is John Lewis's efforts. He introduced five Congresses in a row, beginning the 112th Congress, something called the Voter Empowerment Act, which was to make it easier for people to register and vote in America so they don't have to run an obstacle course to get to the ballot box every two years. And that is Title I of H.R. 1. It's right there stamped on the masthead of the bill to say to Americans, let's, let's have America be the gold standard when it comes to voting instead of lagging behind peer nations around the world. So you combine that with the ethics reforms, protections against foreign interference in our elections, campaign finance reforms to lift up the voice of everyday Americans against the special interest. And you've got a transformative package that can restore trust. Let me say one other thing. In this moment of the pandemic and the economic crisis, people want to know that as we make policy and as tax dollars flow from Washington out to the country to help people who are in need, that the insiders aren't grabbing those dollars off the top, that the special interests aren't finding some sweetheart deal in the mix. And that's why this reform that fights corruption and puts the voice of everyday Americans at the center of the equation is so absolutely critical. Well, Congressman, first of all, hard to imagine a more fitting memorial to John Lewis than to expand voting access and, and, and voting rights, a cause that he was identified with for so long. And you began to allude to some of the detail that's in the bill. And obviously it is, as you said, chock full of ideas that have been floating around Congress for a long time, all kind of wrapped in this idea of reform, pro-democracy reform. Can we break it down a little bit further? It seems like people generally put the contents of this, this package that you assembled into three categories that have to do with fixing how we do politics and government in this country. There's campaign finance, there's government ethics, and there's 
voting and election laws. Is that a good way to think about it, those three buckets? And do you want to give a little bit of texture uh, sure. about what's in those buckets or, or a, a different categorization if, if you think one? No, way. Those, are, those are the buckets I use to describe HR1, no question. And if we begin with the voting reforms component of this, again, headlined by John Lewis's uh, efforts over many, many years, uh, what are they? They're pretty straightforward. They're all the things people have been asking for in, in many places across this country, automatic voter registration and same day registration. So it's easier for people to get on the rolls so they don't have to jump through all these different hoops. In fact, if you had automatic voter registration across the country, you'd add about 50 million people to the voting rolls in America. We ought to do that. That ought to be just kind of a foundational dimension of our democracy. Same day registration is also very important. But then we get to the modalities of voting. And we saw in this last election, people really want to access all of those different ways of getting to the ballot box. So let's have 15 days of early voting across the country. That's Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to make it easier, more convenient for people to vote. Um, let's make sure we're strengthening mail-in voting, which is now obviously an option that people are gonna embrace, I think millions of Americans going forward based on this last election that we saw. So no excuse, absentee ballot voting everywhere in America. That's absolutely critical to have in place. Um, and then let's make sure that the basic election infrastructure is strong and robust. So when you go count, uh, when you go to vote, you know it's gonna be tallied correctly, et cetera. You don't have to have any anxiety about whether your voice is going to be heard. We also recognize that there has been a lot of mischief over the last uh, few election cycles in particular that have to do with voter intimidation, voter suppression, these other things that are, are really about getting in the way of voting instead of helping people. So we put real penalties and fines and consequences for that kind of behavior into HR1 because we wanna make sure that, look, if you get up in the morning, your goal is to go vote. You ought to be able to have confidence. You can eat your breakfast, you're gonna go vote, you're gonna be able to do it, it's not gonna be a trial, and then you can come back home. And too many Americans encounter issues and challenges with that. We can fix it. Now, partisan gerrymandering is a key part, I would say, of relating to the voters uh, many Americans get really upset when they think about how district lines are drawn in this country. So we've got reforms in there which, which would create independent redistricting commissions across the country. So it's a fair process. It's an objective process where the voters get to choose their politicians instead of the politicians choosing their voters to kind of use the refrain that many Americans have, have taken up over the last few years. So that all has to do with respect for the electorate. But then once people get elected and go to Washington, there's two things, there's two anxieties we heard from people. One is, I get worried that they may be in positions of conflict of interest. They may not be as ethically attuned as they need to be or accountable. So we wanna strengthen that with lobbying reforms, with reforms to the Office of Government Ethics, which polices what happens in the executive branch. So again, lawmakers, executive branch officials are behaving themselves when they get to Washington. That shouldn't be a tall order, right? So that's a whole nother set of reforms. 
And then lastly, what people told us is when you get up there into Washington, don't get tangled up in the money. Remember where you came from. James Madison said the government should be dependent on the people alone, not dependent on PACs and super PACs and lobbyists and special interests and the big money class and all the rest of it, which is unfortunately what's happened over the last few years. So disclosure, transparency on where that dark money's coming from. So there's more accountability there. Fixing the FEC, which is the Federal Elections Commission, so it can actually be the cop on the beat and blow the whistle when these big money actors are crossing the line. And then how about this? Why don't we set up a small donor matching system to fund campaigns so that the small donations from everyday Americans matched uh, with other funds can lift up candidates so they can actually run, be competitive and win races not by going hat in hand to the lobbyists on K Street for their money, but by turning to everyday Americans and collecting small donations, empowering their campaign that way. And here's the beautiful part about that system that I like. The way we're gonna pay for it is not with taxpayer money. We're gonna put a small surcharge on settlements that these big corporate lawbreakers enter into with the government. And that's gonna go into the matching fund and underwrite it. And in that way, we're saying to these big corporate actors who've been breaking the trust of the American people, you're going to bear the cost of setting up a new system that can actually restore the trust of the American people. So that's it. Voting reforms, ethics reforms, campaign finance. The last thing, the footnote I'll put on all of this is a lot of provisions protecting us against foreign interference in our elections to make sure that we are as resilient as we can be to foreign intervention. And as we've seen over the last couple election cycles, that is key as well. Yeah, you know, uh, a lot of these reforms were were issues that you and I uh, brought to Congress way back when in 2007. Um, and they've been reforms that have been waiting, just waiting. Um, and, you know, the hope is now with a majority of Democrats in the House, with a tie-breaking vote for the uh, vice president in the U.S. Senate and with a President Biden, now may in fact be the time for what really are common sense and should be bipartisan reforms. One of the things I've been wondering is whether or not there are any pieces of the legislation that you've thought about differently since the post-election period where the uh, former sitting president of the United States, Mr. Trump, tried to stage a coup and overturn the outcomes of our election or, or, or and uh, by the way, incite seditious insurrectionists to storm the Capitol on January 6th. And, and also just uh, today, we're learning that the Supreme Court has decided that the uh, states uh, which brought lawsuits uh, claiming that uh, President Trump had violated the Emoluments Clause, the Supreme Court has just ruled that those are moot because he's not in office. And the Emoluments Clause seemed to be something that was uh, observed continually in the breach, and nobody did much about it. So uh, have any of these recent events um, uh, given you any uh, different perspectives on uh, the legislation. 
Well, certainly, I think they just emphasize, as I mentioned uh, a moment ago, that the democracy is on shaky ground. And if anyone was wondering about that, they, they saw it play out on January 6th with this attack on our capital, which was the result of this extreme, continuous, relentless campaign of misinformation uh, that was uh, waged after the election, but really the table was set for it months before the election with President Trump stoking that, that sort of misinformation out there. So I think it's, it's, it's clear for everyone to see that our democracy, while intact, and you know, President Biden said it has prevailed, yeah, I agree, but it's not something we can take for granted, Paul. I think that's what people have come away from recent events, understanding at a deeper level. And so if you can go to the American people and say, look, we really have a plan here to shore the thing up and make it stronger again and give you confidence that going forward, uh, you're going to be able to rely on these kind of basic fundamental principles of how our democracy functions and thrives. I think that's a very important thing to do in this moment. That's why I think it's kind of a very natural thing for us to come uh, forward with this reform. I also think that it, if you put reforms in place that force candidates and lawmakers to speak to a larger audience and do so on the merits of their ideas, uh, you create more accountability for all political parties. And I would say in particular right now for the Republican Party, one of the things that's happened is because the Republican Party has leaned too heavily on a toolkit that includes voter suppression to kind of reduce those who show up in the political town square that relies on partisan gerrymandering. So there's unfair representation in Congress relative to what the electorate actually looks like or using big money to spread disinformation. If that's how you create the political ecosystem that you're responding to, you're not gonna be accountable. If we put these broad reforms in place, then you're gonna to have to answer to an electorate based on your ideas and the merits of the programs you're offering, not just on arbitrarily kind of shrinking that town square. Why is that good? Well, it's good because it's good for the, the everyday American out there to be respected. But it also means, Paul, that as a party, you have to police some of the more extreme elements inside your own ecosystem, who otherwise can go unpunished because there isn't that broader accountability. So a Republican party that has to answer to a more democratic structure in the country, which is what we're trying to build with HR1, is a Republican party that will realize we've got to do something about these extreme voices or else we're not going to be viable as a party. We can't construct our power some other way. So I actually think that while this is coming out of the Democratic corner, and it was always going to be coming out of our corner, that's where the leadership's been, that it can actually make a difference for both parties and it definitely is something that's being responded to by people across the political spectrum. Every, everything in HR1 polls at 70% or higher in the public, which means you've got Republicans, 
independents and Democrats saying, yeah, let's go do this. Let's fix these problems. That's the power and promise of HR1, S1. We're hoping it's what can help us get it over the finish line. Well, Congressman, you bring up such an important issue here, and it's really a perceptive issue, which is what is driving the Republican opposition to the package of reforms that you've proposed here, which did pass only on a party line vote in the last Congress, seems to have pretty straight down the line Republican opposition. But what you seem to be suggesting is that if Republicans were really being forward thinking and strategic about the future of their party, they would see that there's something in this for them too when it comes to trying to sideline the most extreme voices, perhaps in in both parties, certainly in their party. And I would point out that we just saw 138 of your colleagues, Republican colleagues, vote to not accept the results of the election after the Capitol insurrection. And the New York Times had a terrific piece of analysis showing that 86% of them were in districts that are already gerrymandered to protect them or are going to be gerrymandered because there's full unified control in their states in Republican hands of the redistricting process. So what I want to ask you, and we're going to have to take a break here in in just a moment. So I'm not going to make you, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to filibuster here for you for a second. We're not (laughs) supposed to do this in the house. I'm going to do it for you. So you can think about your your response to this, but I'm just going to tease this. And then after the break, um, maybe you you can walk us through Do you think that the dynamic that is driving all this Republican opposition to these reforms just boils down to, hey, you know what? It's politically advantageous to have restricted access to voting. It's politically advantageous to have gerrymandered districts. Or are there pieces of this where you think, you know, there are some principled or or ideological differences in approach, but we could we could iron this out if we really kind of sat down and worked on it. So let me put a pin in that question right there. Uh, This is Off the Record, broadcast on WKXL. We're going to take a quick break with former Congressman Paul Hodes and current Congressman John Sarbanes. I'm Matt Robeson. We'll be right back. We're back. It's Off the Record. I'm Paul Hodes with Matt Robeson. We're talking with Congressman John Sarbanes about H.R. 1 and S.B. 1 the reform package that's at the top of the democratic agenda. So Matt, you were teasing up a question. I I was teasing uh, a sitting congressman, which is just bad. Well, I, uh, let me, let me get to the question you asked. First of all, I don't mind you filibustering me on this call, but don't, don't weigh in too hard for the filibuster as a concept, because it may be (laughs) something we have to address on the Senate side in order to get this thing done. So I think if you look at, and I'm going to lay a lot of this at the feet of Mitch McConnell, McConnell has sort of built a power structure over the last two, three decades, which has resulted in some ways, you could argue, with a state of minority rule in America, again, where you don't have to be accountable to a large, diverse, and broad set of of uh, voices out there in the American electorate. And they've done it through voter suppression. They've done it through partisan gerrymandering. They've used the big money that that has been at their disposal for years to spread disinformation and kind of lean in on the system in ways that distorts its, its functioning, et cetera. And I think they've just gotten comfortable with that. And frankly, 
what HR1 can do is sort of kick them into a different mentality, which is, okay, if we believe in our ideas, then we ought to go win elections based on those ideas, not based on somehow being able to manipulate who shows up at the polls or use money to distort reality or to use unfair districting uh, uh, line drawing and all the rest of it. So I think, as I said, it'll be good for the for the Republican Party, it'll be good for the Democratic Party, it'll be good for democracy. Uh, but because they've gotten comfortable, I think certainly leadership within the Republican Party is going to continue to resist these changes and will issue a decree across both chambers that their rank and file um, be lockstep with that. Now, maybe we'll get some that will step forward and embrace this. It's interesting to see that there's some groups that are conservative groups out there that are voicing support for HR1, S1. The Lincoln Project recently endorsed the bill and articulated some of the things I'm mentioning here, which is let's go win on, on our ideas and nothing else. That should be what lifts up the Republican Party going forward. Amen, I applaud that. So we may get some, some rank and file members that will step forward. And, and let me just add, there's many bills that we've included in HR1 as part of assembling it that have bipartisan support and we're standalones um, on a bipartisan basis. So it's not like there isn't a lot of good <laughs> cross-party anchoring inside of the HR1 reforms. So we'll see. I mean, I always approach these things with the hope that we can get colleagues across the chamber to step up behind this. Um, as I say, in the country, clearly there's bipartisan support for this. I really resent sometimes when Republicans attack HR1 as being a partisan because there's no Republicans on the bill or voting for it, but that's just a choice they made. I mean, that's, that's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. They all vote against it. And then they say, because they voted against it, that it's partisan. I don't measure partisanship based on what the leadership is proclaiming in Washington. I measure it based on what the people in the country are saying about it. And if you go out there and talk to independents, Republicans, and Democrats alike, they're like, yeah, why didn't you do this 15, 20 years ago? across the spectrum they support it. So that's the, that's the audience I'm answering to, is what Americans out there are saying we need to do, not some narrative that Mitch McConnell wants to spout about, you know, a democratic power grab or these other things that he said about a bill. No, this is a power grab on the part of small d democratic patriots across the country who just want to get their democracy back? John, I I want to I want to offer you my really heartfelt and sincere condolences on the death of your dad last year. Um, he was uh, he was a political legend, uh, just a great man, a U.S. senator for thirty years, and he was famously able to pass the Sarbanes-Oxley law, 
with Republicans and a Democrat working together to provide oversight and transparency and accountability for corporations. So, you know, you have in your DNA the idea and the ethos of working with Republicans on ethics and public accountability and, and good, good government. So here we are almost two decades later, very different time, especially in the US Senate with all the obstruction and maneuvering that Mitch McConnell has been able to muster to stop progress. Um, and <clears throat> I know that, um, you know, as a member of the house, you don't necessarily want to go about telling our colleagues in the Senate uh, how to conduct their business. But um, given the structure of the Senate and the rules that are in place, and we alluded a little bit to this earlier, is there a way to pass the For the People Act in today's U.S. Senate while there's still a filibuster in place subject to misuse? Well, first of all, thanks, Paul, for your words about my dad. Obviously, we miss him. He he lived a full life and he was a very committed reformer himself. And I'm sure I, you know, I'm sure I'm taking that as kind of an example in a lot of the work that I'm, that I'm trying to do. I will say this, um, I'm glad he lived long enough to see his longtime friend Joe Biden become president, but not so long as to see the place where he worked for 36 years of his life, the U.S. Capitol, uh, under attack. I think that would have broken his heart. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, the, the rules of the Senate are a great mystery in some ways, <laughs> uh, particularly when you watch them from, from the House side. And we do have this 60 vote threshold um, under the filibuster rules. And I'm not going to lie to you, that's, that's a real impediment to getting this across the finish line in the Senate. I mean, because we got a 50-50 split over there and we have, as you mentioned, Vice President Harris as the, as the tiebreaker. Um, I, I do think that you know, we, we should start from a place of testing Republicans' willingness to do the right thing on fixing our democracy and see if they're willing to help get to that 60 vote threshold. But if they're not, and to be honest, I don't anticipate that given where McConnell uh, has been uh, for the last umpty ump years, then I think, you know, our Senate colleagues on the, on the Dem side should look at all their options and including revisiting the filibuster and seeing what make, makes sense there. Um, I think you can certainly make a good argument that when it comes to reforms that are designed to affect, in effect, restore majority rule in America, which is what I largely view HR1 as trying to do, that those reforms should not be thwarted by a supermajority requirement in the US Senate. I mean, if there's, if there's any place where you would say majority rule should determine the outcome of a piece of legislation, it should be legislation that's designed to restore majority rule and in a sense set the table for all the other important things that we need to do. And so I think, I think the filibuster is gonna get scrutiny. I think there's gonna be um, a big push 
in the public, uh, a recognition that if this is what stands between us and getting this kind of important change for our democracy, that it has to be looked at uh, very, very carefully. So stay tuned on that front. But, you know, I think Leader Schumer will, will figure out a strategy for, for moving forward on this. And let me put it this way. Whatever it takes for us to be able to get this passed and onto the president's desk, I'm for that. <laughs> well, that's uh, amen. And, and, you know, just to spike the football for a moment on your last point, I mean, it, it really is the definition of irony to block pro-democratic reform through anti-democratic uh, internal legislative rules. And, you know, you were saying before that you don't look to the stand of Mitch McConnell to try and judge what real actual people, what real actual voters think. And I just point out, you know, on that point that, you know, a, a measure like independent redistricting commissions was actually on the ballot in 2018 in four states. And it won in a landslide mm -hmm. in all yeah. states by an average running ahead of the democratic top of the ticket in each mm -hmm. case by an average of about 20 points. I mean, you're talking, you're talking red states. Claire McCaskill lost her bid for re-election to the U.S. Senate at 45%. The redistricting initiative passed with 62%. You just go down the line. So clearly you are right that these are things that actual real people want. So I want to flip the question on its head a little bit. I think you've outlined a really compelling case for why this should be the most important thing we do, the, the number one bill in both chambers. What about the flip side of it? Um, you know, as you said, a lot of the pieces that you've assembled here have been floating around in Congress ever since Paul was a, a member of Congress uh, and before. Um, so can they, can they sit on the shelf longer without, without further damage to the country? I mean, what is, what is the risk to the government and to our upcoming elections in 2022, 2024, if we don't get some of these measures passed? I think the risk is very high. I think we have to respond in this moment. Already, you are seeing political operatives on the Republican side, I have to say it, at the state level who are leaning back into their mischief, the voter suppression. You know, Brad Raffensperger in Georgia got a lot of favorable attention because he was standing up to Donald Trump. Okay, fine. But He's, he's gone and testified to the Georgia General Assembly already on a proposal to roll back no excuse absentee ballot voting in Georgia on grounds that it's just too administratively burdensome. So he's moving back in the wrong direction. And we're seeing similar things happening across the country. Voter, voter purging from the rolls has already begun in many places across the country. So, you know, time is of the essence here. And if, as I say, the democracy we pulled back from the brink is still very fragile or arguably on life support, we've got to get some good treatment there quickly um, if we're going to nurse it back to health. And if we wait two years or four years or six years at this point uh, where things are as shaky as they are, we may not be able to get back to a strong democracy. This is the moment to do it. And I think there's an appreciation, certainly by many Americans of this, but as well increasingly by the people that are serving them in Washington. And it's why 
we want to build in a sense um, a kind of aura of inevitability that this needs to happen and that anyone who cares about our democracy wherever they sit on the political spectrum this is the time to stand up and make your voice heard and and act in a way that can save our democracy and look here's the benefit if the democracy works better if special interests aren't the ones that call the shots on policy anymore what does that mean it means we can go do the right thing on environmental policy and climate change on tax policy on gun safety legislation etc the list goes on and on of things that have been blocked progress that has been impeded because money and influence and insiders have too much control over the agenda. Americans hate corruption. Abraham Lincoln is still the president that polls the highest when you ask Americans who our greatest president was because he was honest, Abe. It's because he had integrity, because he cared about democracy and spoke of a government that was of, by, and for the people. Let's give Americans a Lincoln-esque democracy again that they so deeply cherish. That's what we're trying to do with HR1. So in the, uh, in the wake of the, of the insurrection and uh, the members of the House and the Senate who despite the attack, the deadly attack on our Capitol, still refuse to certify the valid election of President Biden and Vice President Harris, we've seen corporate donors fleeing um, certain members of uh, certain members of uh, the Republican Party in a very visible uh, backlash of corporate money. But that's not the whole issue about our campaign finance system. Um, it's an issue that I cared passionately about when I was in Congress. It's an issue that I that you know that we've all talked as members and former members of Congress. We talk about it a lot in private. It seems like there could be some bipartisan agreement about how we fund elections. And I want to I want to read you something that uh, by our former colleague, uh, Steve Israel, who wrote uh, in The New York Times. And he wrote something. Uh, frankly, I could have said it. You could say it. Almost any member, every member of Congress could say this. And here's what he said. In the days after my first election to Congress, I attended several orientation sessions in Washington, eager to absorb the lessons of history. The romance was crushed by lesson number one, get reelected. A fundraising consultant advised that if I didn't raise at least $10,000 a week, and this is in pre-Citizens United dollars, I wouldn't be back. So there were hours of call time huddled in a cubicle. I always said a beige windowless cubicle, dialing for dollars, dialing people who used to be our friends, dialing donors, sometimes double dialing and triple dialing. Since then, says Congressman Israel, I've spent roughly 4,200 hours in call time, attended more than 1,600 fundraisers just for my own campaign, and raised nearly $20 billion in increments of $1,500 and $5,000 per election cycle. And things have only become worse in the five years since the Citizens United decision. John, is it just something people talk about in private? Is it only lip service because members of Congress are comfortable with the game they play about raising money, this confluence of power and money, which often impedes progress. 
does does is it or does everyone really hate the current system and can we fix it why what you just described, you know, it, it, it makes you break out in hives when you <laughs> listen to it. I'm sure that's happening to you just remembering being there. Uh-huh. It's, it's nuts. And it's demoralizing, not just to the public, but I think to members of Congress, because we weren't elected to become full-time professional fundraisers. We were elected to go be legislators and try to turn the concerns and priorities of our constituents. Um, into legislation that can make a difference in their lives. So I, I believe that most members and the ones I talk to, they don't, they don't like this system. They don't want to be in this system. The problem is it's the only way right now that you can raise the dollars you need to run a competitive campaign. I mean, you know, the cost of a winning congressional campaign sure. is like $1.7, $1.8 million every two years, which is nuts. In order to do that, you have to do the, the cold calling and the, and the call time and everything else that Steve Israel was describing in that quote you just relayed, um, or else you're not going to be able to raise those dollars. If there was a different way to raise money that allowed you to be with your constituents, to reach out and spend time with the public instead of having to hang out on K Street with the lobbyists or go to the cocktail parties after hours or spend hundreds of hours doing call time, the people you'll never meet just asking for money. Um, I think that members would reach for that. And we've designed a system that we can show members of Congress will allow them to be competitive, but spend time with their constituents. Let me give you a very specific example. So to make it worth going up to K Street, you'd probably have to tell a member of Congress that if they go up and spend 20, 30 minutes with a bunch of people around a, a conference room table, they need to bring back $10,000 to make it worth it, right? Okay, so what can we create out there in the public that can match that as an incentive? Well, if you have a six to one matching system, which is the system we've proposed on small donations for candidates who agree to do certain things to wean themselves off of the big money, if you have that in place, I have a house party in my district, I invite 30, regular people to come. They show up. They each make a $50 donation. There's a six to one match that goes behind it. I've just raised more than $10,000 by spending time with real people in my district listening to their concerns instead of going to the big money. That's how you change incentives and create power for the people. That's why we're so excited about this new approach for campaign finance. All right, Congressman, I'm, uh, we've got about two minutes left before we wrap, so I'm going to be tremendously unfair uh, to you. I'm going to give you not only a tough question, but also one where you have a, a limited shot clock. Um, so look, there's no ma magic bullets in this package of reforms that you've proposed. It's all important. But look, you've got three kids. I've got three kids. I, I, no one would ask you to choose among all your favorite children. But look, if you could choose just one here, one thing that you could by fiat get done. What's the most important piece in here in terms of protecting American democracy? So here's my buzzer beater. I'm not going to choose one. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to choose one because the public has told us we need all of them. It's not enough to fix voting that allows us to get to the ballot box if the people we elect get to Washington and start working for somebody else. So you've got to also fix the ethics piece and you've got to fix the campaign finance 
reform peace. This is why we put it all together in one package, because Americans were saying our cynicism is so deep, our grievances are so broad, that if you don't put a package together that really tells us we're the ones in charge, we're not going to believe you're serious about this. We put it together to be serious. We've got that public support. We've got momentum with HR1, S1, and we're going to push as hard and as fast as we can. My mantra for this bill is the HR1 bag is packed and by the front door, we just got to grab it and go. And that's what we're going to do. Folks, that's Congressman John Sarbanes, who is the lead on HR1 and SB1 reform for our time. Congressman, thanks for joining us. It's off the record. I'm Paul Hodes with Matt Robeson. Pick us up on your podcast wherever you hear podcasts. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.